You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Literary Tracks, TFM's local books and comic show. I'm so excited to be here with you and we have just a very special episode for you as we are going to be diving into the new audio drama No Man's Land by the one Kirsten Beyer as well as Mike Johnson Star Trek comic genius, and so we are so excited to have that for you. Uh, Before we dive into the episode, just a quick reminder, of course, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Would really appreciate if you're subscribed. Just make sure uh, you're following us everywhere, and if you've got an opportunity to say give us a star rating review on like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, of course, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can find the listeners only discussion group where you can talk to listeners from all over the world as well as Trek.FM, the website. And of course, uh, you can also support us on Patreon. Uh, we do want to say a huge thank you to Greg Rosier as well as Casey Pettit for their support of the network. We really appreciate it and for being associate producers here on Literary Treks and making sure that all these shows keep coming to you each and every week. And again, you can go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of that team. But without further ado, there's no reason to wait. Let's dive into our feature. So excited to have back uh, here on Literary Treks is the one and only Mike Johnson, as well as Kirsten Beyer, to talk about their brand new audio drama. And I just, I mean, it, it's been too long uh, since both of you have been back. Um, and so welcome back to Literary Treks. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay. So we got to dive right in, and one of the things I was really interested to ask you both was in creating, obviously, you know, Kirsten, you know, you've been very involved with creating the novels we've been getting for Picard, mm-hmm. and so when y'all were creating this story, what made you choose the audio drama format as the right way to present this story? Well, it was sort of the reverse. The audio drama format shows us. Um, nice. Okay. <laughs> we, uh, Simon and Schuster reached out to me a few years back and said that they were interested in uh, starting to do things like this. And they wanted Star Trek Picard to be their very first um, foray into that form. And so from, from the very beginning, we knew that uh, this was going to be... Um, what the, what the show was going to be and very quickly settled on 
the characters that we were probably going to want to use and began building story around that. Oh, that's great. With uh, For both of you then, I mean, Mike, obviously you're like comic man, like when it comes to Star Trek, like you've written some of the best comics out there. Um, and then Kirsten, of course, you. you know, you've been involved with, um, you know, writing some of the best Star Trek books. I mean, literally the best Voyager novels we've ever gotten. So uh, how did you guys come together to craft this story then? Oh, I was really lucky because I get to work with Kirsten and she reached out to me and said, do you want to work on this together? And it was kind of a reverse of what happened with the comics where, you know, I had been writing the comics and, and um, Kirsten came on and I, I showed her the ropes. Whereas in this case, I hadn't written um, dialogue for actors for Star Trek before. Uh, so Kirsten was showing me the ropes of, you know, the difference between um, scripting dialogue to be read on the page as she has so much experience in with the novels versus writing for actors to actually say the lines. And there's a big difference. So it was, it was not just a, just a super fun opportunity, but it was a, it was a really great education as well. Just returning the favor. (laughs) Yeah. So for, for, for both of you guys then, um, writing this story, how did that work? Did each of you kind of write a specific part or was it just getting in a room together, going back and forth? How did that partnership end up working? I wish we could have gotten in. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Was all, um, that would be fun. I remember when we were in I there. do too. <laughs> I, do. I remember um, those good times. Yeah. No, we, um, we zoom a couple times, although most, I, I would say most of our really serious story breaking is on the phone. Um, I kind of like doing it on the phone. I just feel more focused. Um, and uh, we would just play story tennis and, and hit the story ball back and forth. And I think the comics, we'd had so much experience doing the comics together and we really enjoyed, I mean, the most important thing in a writing partner is that you enjoy their company. And um, we just have a lot of fun writing together. And it's basically like, what could happen? Okay, what would happen next? Maybe this, maybe that. It's it's. Uh, it's a process of discovery, like every creative uh, endeavor is. And um, yeah, it's just like, yeah. And then when it came just specifically to the writing, we just chose storylines um, that uh, we wanted to just to divide and conquer in terms of getting the pages done. That's yeah, that's really neat. Um, I know uh, I've, you know, talking to like um, uh, Dayton um, and Kevin Dillmore, they were, since they were writing partners, they would do that as well. So that makes a lot of sense then that this kind of worked very similarly. So that's really cool. Um, well, obviously, Kirsten, you know, you're super involved with Picard and what's happening on screen. So when it came to, you know, the genesis of the story for you and Mike that you'd be working on, um, where did the idea come from to kind of focus on that relationship between Rafi and Seven, which was kind of planted there at the very end of Picard? Well, by the time, you know, we've been talking about the project for a long time, but by the time it became more real, we had finished season one and we're about to start working on season two. So I just sort of, you know, kept track of where the various storylines were going and then, you know, went looking for the place where we were going to have the basically the most room to play. And it felt like um, going very soon after the end of season one 
and um, and getting to play in the Fenris Ranger territory of it all uh, was going to be very um, was going to be right for us, you know. So um, mm-hmm. so we were interested in in the relationship dynamic between Seven and Raffi, and also getting a little bit deeper into the history of both characters. No, I can definitely understand that being a really important because, you know, something that, you know, caught, I think, everybody's attention um, at the end of, you know, season one of Picard was the fact that there was this. Wow. OK, so Rafi in seven, you know, possibly being in some kind of relationship. So where did that idea come from? Where did that emanate from? Was that just the chemistry of the actors on screen or was that something that had been kind of in the works the entire first season no it, it became it came late in the season and it was a it was a combination of the chemistry of the actors and the characters and um things that the writers and producers and directors of those final episodes were seeing um that they felt very strongly they were going to want to um go deeper into so mm-hmm. but it, it happened yeah. towards the end of season one Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, and that, that and it's something that's so interesting about television, um, how the course of characters relationships can be changed just because characters have such a chemistry on screen as actors that they get written in a whole new way. Kind Absolutely. of like what happened with Worf and Dax. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a really fascinating um, thing to watch and to be a part of. Because, you know, the story exists in your head for so long. And then uh, these amazingly talented people show up and begin bringing it to life. And you realize how many things that were possible that you were missing. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm sure, you know, Mike, you've had the same thing as, as Kirsten, where it's like you have this story in your head. And as you start seeing characters interact in your story, you realize, oh, no, they wouldn't do that. They would do this. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's sort of two aspects to it. One is um, capturing the voices of the characters as as brought to life by the performers, uh, which is so important, as, which makes this project so special, is, is that we have the actual performers reading the lines, and they do such a beautiful job. They know those characters so well. And then, exactly what you're saying, as you plot the story, you that's one of the guides that helps you figure out actually how a plot progresses. What would the characters do? How would they react to a new circumstance or a surprise or a shock? And then um, that, that goes down to the scene level. Uh, so when you're actually in a scene writing the scenes, would they say a particular line? Would they respond to someone else's line in a particular mm-hmm. way? So um, I think it, it, it was invaluable to have Kirsten, obviously, who has written these characters for the screen, to be able to bring that over into uh, the audiobook world, which is so different from the novels that Kirsten has done, the comics that I've done, um, this new toolbox that we're playing with, but having that connection to the shows was vital. Yeah, very, I mean, obviously really in, important, and, and specifically too, since you know these books themselves, and, and of course this audio drama, very much trying to keep within, you know, that continuity, which is so important to fans as well. And so, you know, with this idea of this relationship, I thought one of the beautiful things about this story was the way in which 
the main thematic element seemed to be to me was about love. And you've got Rafi's love-hate relationship with Starfleet. You've got Seven's fear of love. You've got Professor Gillen's, you know, story of love with Helena. You've even kind of got this idea of misguided love with Reinen and his, I guess you could call it love for the Romulan Empire. Maybe it's just power. <laughs> um, but like all of these ideas, it's it you're building around this theme of like, what is love? I guess baby don't hurt me. Um, but... Um, and I, I I liked how every single story you guys really specifically kind of put all of these explorations of the different types of love we have in our life and how they pull us one way or another. Very much so. Very much so. Because, you know, we wanted to explore the dynamic between these two women who this is not their first rodeo. They have both been in multiple relationships in the past and they've, you know, gone how they went. And I think in some ways we're surprised to find themselves open to this, whatever was happening between them, mm-hmm. given the circumstances under which they met. And so it was going to have to be a different kind of thing. We're not going to meet cute, face some obstacles, and then have it all work out in the end, right? It's going to be an ongoing discussion about whether or not this is even possible whether or not this is what I want and how much of that depends on who I am and how much of that am I comfortable sharing with you? You know, Um, it was nice because we really got to take our time in exploring the genesis of this. Um, And of course we have the benefit of knowing where we needed to land, but um, still as you're going through it, you want almost anything to feel possible. And that's what a lot of the other story arcs that you're talking about gave us, right? Because they're meant to reflect in some ways what they're going for and then what they're hoping for and reaching for, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and I thought one of the the beautiful things that you did in the story was where Gillen says that, you know, love is built moment by moment. And how true that rings because in in the end like love is not just a feeling it is a choice that we make moment by moment you know to be with that person and stay committed with that person it's it's continually that choice and i i, I was really struck by how beautiful of a um representation of what that means to truly love something because there are times when you can love hate something like rafi does with starfleet right or um, you know, you can have a complete fear of love and like seven does and you have to overcome that by choosing to overcome, you know, and I, I just I felt like you guys really had hit on something that was so beautiful because all of these characters are, are kind of struggling in different ways. And to to have that be um, the thing that I think allows these characters to be able to especially Rafi and seven at the end of the story to make the choice that they do where they're, they're, they're choosing to explore what their love will look like was really, really cool. Thank you. I'm so glad that resonated with you. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're exactly it was right great. About the different kinds of love. Yeah. There's, you know, there's, um, there's even Seven's relationship to the Fenris Rangers. They have, I think they have a very strong bond in the sense that the Rangers all feel like 
um, justice is not quite being done around the galaxy as much as it could be mm-hmm. taken upon themselves um, to right wrongs out there. But they're also, I think we've, we established in this, that they're also kind of a, a loose association. They're not really formalized with uniforms and ranks and things like that, that they are, um, they are a group of individuals mm-hmm. uh, that each have their own quirks and personalities. And I think Fenris seven is drawn to that because it isn't regimented. And as someone who has, has fought so hard for her own individuality, occurs to me that the, the rangers are almost the opposite of the borg <laughs> yes. yeah <laughs> yes. the, the borg is like plug yourself in and look like everyone else and do what you're told and the rangers is um uh yeah you do you mm-hmm. as long as we're all pointed in the right direction that's a i mean that's a good point because you know in in many ways when it comes to seven specifically in her relationships like this story is very much about how much are you going to let people in? Um, and you know, that kind of desire to be fully known and fully loved and the fear of being happy or the fear of change and all that stuff. I mean, seven is definitely dealing with all of that. And I think, man, you, you pointed that out makes so much sense, Mike, that for her, the Fenris Rangers are the perfect place to be right now because their commitment level is, easier for her to deal with it's it's because like you said it's not so regimented yeah i also think that she's yeah exactly but i also think she's really made a place for herself there like Mm -hmm. you know when you're talking about the commitment level is low but the passion level is high like these people risk their lives and lose their lives just because they think they're doing the right thing and that there is something very um attractive and um, God, what is the word that I'm looking for? Idealistic in the extreme <laughs> about that position. And yet it seems to be working for them. And, and I really, and I have to say, you know, I really appreciated the fact that you guys dove more into the Fenris Rangers because I found them fascinating. And obviously I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of allusions to, uh, you know, the Rangers of the North with, um, Lord of the Rings, it seems like, because they're kind of holding this area together that everybody else is kind of you know, abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, f- I loved the fact that part of this book was helping us as fans understand what their mission is and how vital it is. Um, and it's something I'm really hoping, you know, we get to see more of because it's a really cool idea to kind of be in this like Bermuda triangle of trouble that has happened because of what happened with the supernova and the Romulans. Yeah, we talked a lot about the political realities of, um, you know, the Romulan Empire, the Federation, and all of the people who live in between. And there is such a, one of the greatest things about working in Trek right now is that we get to dig a little deeper into some of those realities and try to make them resonant with, you know, what's happening in our world today. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it was very, very present for us as we were trying to imagine what kind of um, what kind of losses these folks would be dealing with and who, how they would, you know, how you do, how you survive. So much of it right now feels just like a struggle for survival. I mean, and absolutely because, you know, when you think about the fallout of a supernova, the destruction of an entire empire, 
Um, and then the the refugee crisis that would would happen. I mean, and the implications of you know what happened with you know what we saw with Starfleet and everything. And then, like you said, Kirsten, it, there's a whole section of that part of the galaxy too that wasn't part of the Federation. They weren't part of the Romulan Empire, and now everybody is kind of like trying to deal with the aftermath of what happened. And, you know, it creates this kind of lawless zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the Fenris Rangers are there to support that. And I loved how, too, you guys kind of connected with what we saw with uh, John Jackson Miller's book, Rogue Elements, and the cultural artifacts and the relics and all that. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was all tying together so well. I'm like, dude, I just need, like, a Picard season that's, like, 26 episodes so we can <laughs> deal with all this stuff. Because this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah. It really is. It's a lot of fun to um, to just sort of play these thought experiments out to their logical conclusions. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, with that, too, you I mean, you guys gave us a couple of new characters there to play with with the Fenris Rangers and kind of give us some more understanding. Where did some of the uh, inspirations come for those characters specifically? Well, I think earlier we were talking about Robin Hood, right? Mm, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I think as we got deeper into it and closer to the actual writing, I remember I was rewatching a lot of the Marvel movies with my daughter and we hit Guardians of the Galaxy again. And I was like, oh, right. This is, this is much more, I think, the feeling and the tone that the Rangers would have. You know, these people who are bound together by the loosest of threads. And yet their common experiences bring them much closer for these intense, short periods of time. And then it all falls apart or it all comes back together, depending. Yeah, we wanted to put a spin on it. Kirsten had this great idea with deep who is sort of a staple of, um, you know, having that alien that makes weird noises mm-hmm. um, is a sci-fi staple. And I'll just say spoiler alert right now. Hit pause if you haven't listened to the audiobook yet. Uh, okay, spoiler alert done. Um, Kirsten had the genius idea to have Deet suddenly break out into Federation Standard at one point. Um, and this suddenly fleshes out the character in a really surprising, delightful way. So it's taking those inspirations and and uh, always trying to find the spin on them. Yeah, so and that they feel and the ways in which that reveals character that tells you so much about Deep that he respects Hiro enough that he will speak his own language. But then you know yes. Hiro's not there; he's okay using a translator. Well, and and there was something really interesting about that, and and I thought was very poignant because you know language is so important, right? And and how we understand a different culture has to do with how we understand their language and what that language means to them because it it says so much about who they are, what they believe in, what they hold dear. Um, and so if we can truly understand their language and Hiro, like not liking universal translators, I thought was um, you know, something that was really interesting because he does kind of have a point when it, when it comes to the idea of like what language is and and what it actually says about us as a people who speak it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was, that was the hook that helped me understand who he was going to be his, his absolute love of language, because 
Well, first of all, this is an audio only experience. So you're going to want to play with language in ways that you don't necessarily get to do on the page or on screen. Um, right. But to give him that as sort of the center of his character suddenly made him such a real person in my head. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who love language. Um, but then, of course, the, the difficulty of learning that many languages and where you might have to take shortcuts or where you might misunderstand things. Um, but I think what you're saying is so interesting because, you know, we think about the universal translator as such a powerful tool. Uh, and it is, and it allows us to communicate quickly and effectively with all these alien species. But yeah, you never mm -hmm. stop and think about how much you're missing, you know, because at the end of the day, it's a program. Mm -hmm. Which is something like Mike, of course, you know, having written so much for the the Kelvin timeline comics, which I love what they did with Ohura, right? They made her somebody who actually worked to understand other languages in their original form. And I think that brought something that had never really happened in Star Trek before. Yeah, and it's beyond, you know, you can, I think it, you can argue that the Universal Translator is as important a tool uh, as the replicator in terms of bringing um, the galaxy together. But even just the Universal Translator doesn't convey nuance. It doesn't handle idiom very well. So Uhura does all that for thousands of of species, I think, and um, that, I mean, she's special for a lot of reasons, but that's what, to me, one of the things that makes her so iconic within within Star Trek is that she represents um, communication and, and creating peace between different species in a way that no other character does. Um, and to your point, language is so so intrinsic in in um the identity of a culture and i mean one of the things i love about the united states is that we have people speaking all kinds of languages and i love it in la you can go into different parts of la and see signs in you know ethiopian and korean and um different dialects of spanish like the diversity of that makes everything more interesting. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, having grown up um, with an Italian side of the family and in Dallas, where it's also very multi-ethnic as well, and there's completely different parts of the city um, that you can go to where that's the case, um, I think it is a really cool uh, opportunity and a, and a thing to be aware of. And again, like, yeah, language is, is really important. And I was really struck by the character of Professor Gillen. And he was one of the most interesting characters that I've, I feel like I've seen in Star Trek for a while. And so I would love to hear both of you just kind of talk about where he comes from. And like, he, uh, we've met long lasting characters in Star Trek. But where did this idea for the Lemnist Gate and all that come from as well? Well, I think initially we were looking, obviously, for a character who was going to have a past with Seven and who um, she might have met and assumed one thing about, but really never had the time to know his whole story. Um, and and so he sort of he he begins as what's the what does the story mean? And then you have to think about. Things like, okay, well, you've been given eternal life. What are you going to do with that? How's that going to feel? Um, is it a mm -hmm. gift? Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? 
Um, and, you know, it didn't seem to be a huge leap to imagine that if someone who had been granted that actually met the soulmate, love of his life, most amazing uh, person to be with, that once the that person was lost, um, it would change everything for him. So, mm-hmm. you know, and then it also became about how do you create, what is the, what is the ideal of the romantic relationship that you're trying to um, express here? And it had everything to do with um, these very, very small moments that they shared day in and day out. Um, Not the big, huge events that you think you build a life on, but the little things that you do every single day and how precious and cherished those would be. And then being able to sort of filter that through the idea of a guy who is an archeologist and who studies the tiny fragments that are left of civilizations and uses them to try to rebuild, you know, an idea of who people were and how much is revealed in those tiny things. So he was kind of a lot of stuff, really a lot of ideas that came together um, to form that character. With um, him as a character too, he says that he got the Lumnus Gate from a traveler. Mm -hmm. Does he mean that kind of traveler? I know, Mike, what do you think? Uh, my my headcanon says different type of traveler, okay. but the fact that we don't make that clear is uh, an opening for a story. So I'm going to say I don't know. I liked that. I like that um, because I was like immediately that obviously I guess for any Star Trek fan, you're like traveler. It must get confusing like in the in that world when you're like, so I met this traveler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You're a> traveler? <laughs> right. So wait, wait, wait. When you say Whoa. traveler... What do you mean? I met do you someone mean, on a trip. Was it a capital T traveler or just like a lower <laughs> KC? Yeah, okay, okay. Right, or if someone says, I'm a traveler, and they're like, oh, where are you from? And, <laughs> and the traveler's like, oh, no, never mind. Yeah, uh, frustrating. Well, and I liked that idea of exploring like what eternal life would look like and, and the type of character to which, you know, giving it to an archaeologist, eternal life, or the chance of eternal life, seems like the type of person who would truly enjoy that because what do they enjoy most is seeing not only history play out, but being able to see the long game. Yeah. And I, I, I thought that that was really interesting because, you know, so many times people that get eternal life in stories, it becomes a burden to them. And for him, this was not a burden. This was something that was so beautiful and he truly enjoyed because it was everything a part of him getting to see played out. Exactly. And also the idea of him as a historian. You mm-hmm. know? And, yes. and, and then, you know, in a civilization that has just violently been destroyed, you know, who was studying that specifically and, you know, is in some ways responsible for what we are going to remember of that time and place. Mm-hmm. For, for, uh, did the Lemnus Gate idea have anything to do with like the original just thought process they had behind insurrection looking for a fountain of youth type of thing? Or is that just something that came to you guys aside from that? It was separate, actually. I wasn't okay. we weren't really even thinking about the the fountain of youth of it all. OK. Yeah, it was really just eternal life. Nice, because that's obviously, you know, what's driving the villain of the story here. Um, and, you know, I mean, 
we don't spend enough time with Reinen to to know exactly, but he wants to be able to rule forever over our new Romulan Empire. So um, was that just a function of needing that type of character of the story, or are we maybe hoping to see Reinen later on? I think we wanted... I think we wanted more to it than that. We certainly needed an antagonist. Um, but then we wanted it to, to feel right in the context of the time period in Star Trek that we're talking about in the wake of Ron Ellis's destruction. That opens up a whole, a whole galaxy of interesting stories to tell. So we really wanted his story to be a story um, based around the fallout from that event, which also dovetails with what the Fenris Rangers are doing trying to um, restore some kind of justice to uh, a lawless region of space. So um, he definitely uh, has his issues, but at least we wanted to make him um, interesting. And I think that that comes through um, that he, in the way that he sweet talks Gillen to try to get what he wants, but then at other times can be just Mm-hmm. imperious and dismissive so um yeah even even when you just sort of need an antagonist to the story you just want to make sure you're you're looking at the story from their point of view when you write them yeah they always have to have wants and needs that go beyond power or love or money or you know what i mean and in his case it's driven by the insecurities he felt as being outcast from his family under the old mm-hmm. romulan empire and then also i think recognizing sort of a political reality that any empire he builds might not outlast him because clearly nothing is permanent. Right. And so the chance yes. to have create that kind of permanence would be very attractive to somebody who has that as their goal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in you just think about where the Romulan people are at this point and you can understand why somebody would think, okay, what we need is we need a very strong leader and a leader who is going to be around for an extremely long period of time to make sure that our people are safe. Right. And so, I I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense to me as to why he's not just a mustache twirling villain, but he is somebody who, who has these motivations. And they're, I mean, for him... They're good, but for when you think about the reality of what it's also terrifying, right? For for the rest of us. Right. (laughs) For both of you, uh, did y'all get the opportunity to work with uh, Jerry and Michelle uh, as they were doing the recordings at all? Yes, we did. We were there for most of the first uh, and longest recording sessions, mainly as a resource to them in case there was anything that wasn't clear or anything that maybe we had written less well than we might have if it wasn't tripping easily <laughs> off the tongue we could cor- course correct and be like ah there's another way to say that so yeah that's really cool well um mike i know that you have a very tight schedule and so i want to make sure uh, that we honor that so again thank you so much for coming back to literary treks and so i just wanted to give you the opportunity so that everybody has the opportunity to follow you and find you and see what you've got coming up next yeah, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I'm not on social media very much, but I do have a Twitter account at Mike Comics, which is M-I-K-E-C-O-M-I-X. And I post uh, announcements when books are coming out and, and funny Star Trek stuff. So look for me there and be happy to hear from you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks.
And Kirsten, I know that you're not many places <laughs> on social media, um, but if there is a place where anybody can catch up with you at all, where would that be? I mean, there just isn't any more, you know, I am, <laughs> I'm the worst. Um, but it's just, it's not for a lack of uh, love or desire to connect with the fans as more just, I have, they keep me very, very busy all day, every day. Um, yes. One thing that uh, may be coming up, I can't confirm this a hundred percent, but at this point in time, we are talking about being at Mission Chicago. So oh, um, great. So it's possible for people who are going to be there that I might be able to connect with them there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that is very exciting and hopefully that will be the case. So we'll pray that happens. But again, thank you both so much for being with us here on Literary Treks. And we'll look forward to having you back soon because we're hoping you write some more stuff. <laughs> thank you, Matt. It's always a pleasure. Yes, please. Thanks, Matt. Well, I know if you're anything like me, you enjoyed that. It was so much fun to be able to talk to Kirsten as well as Mike together about this incredible new experience here with Star Trek in the audio drama format. Want to say a huge thank you to everybody for listening. And uh, of course, again, don't don't forget, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and of course, if you want to find me, uh, you can find me all over the place on social media, MattRushing02 on all the platforms out there pretty much. That's where you'll find me. You can also find me, of course, here on the network with The Orb and Warp 5. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And Warp 5 is also about star trek enterprise and then you can find me on the 602 club which is our whole other side of the network we talk so much star trek here we talk about all the other fandoms that we love over on the 602 club so i hope you'll check that out as well with all of the different films and tv shows and things like that that we're covering you can also find me on the nerd party network doing two shows one is a completed show I did with Drea Kaufman all about the Harry Potter series. We talked about that one chapter at a time and doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.